Oh, hello. Hi. This is an I'll test your podcast to your blogger. Speaking to you the day before Thanksgiving. And it's a rainy day here in Madison, Wisconsin. The snow all got melted. It's kind of dreary. But there's no reason to be dreary inside. It's lovely uh, to be around to do another podcast. I wanted to start with, um, well... But what would be the most interesting place to start? Maybe we should start with President Trump pardoning the turkeys. I think that happened yesterday. And I, I thought he had some comedy to his. It's always a little bit comic, a little bit serious, a little bit comic when they do that thing with the birds every year. He said, uh, like so many presidential flocks, this one started in the great state of Iowa in what can only be described as an act of blatant pandering. And by the way, I love the state of Iowa. These two turkeys sought to win the support of Iowans across the state by naming themselves Corn and Cobb. Look at that beautiful bird. Oh, so lucky. That is the lucky bird. Corn, I hereby grant you a full pardon. Thank you, Corn. Iowa Farm, I knew I liked you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Thank you very much. So there he was doing the turkey business for the last time. And ignoring the shouted out question, any pardons before you leave office? Will you be issuing a pardon for yourself? Well, he just walked away about that. In another post this morning, I see that Axios came up with what I called the least surprising scoop. Trump tells confidence he plans to, pl- he plans to pardon Michael Flynn. Well, I think we already knew that. We don't need a scoop to know that. We just need a, a brain, half of a brain. Anyway, uh, back to the turkey pardon post. I excerpted the humorous material, but there was also some serious talk about thanking God and the perseverance of the pilgrims. And something that completely surprised me, this year our nation commemorates the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock. What? I said. That's a gigantic anniversary, a centennial mark. And I'd heard absolutely nothing about it. I guess one ought to have these historical dates seared in your mind, speaking of having half a brain, but I didn't have 1620 in my head. Sorry, I just didn't. So I thought, uh, was anybody talking about this? And I googled that question and found an op-ed by Tom Cotton from a few days ago. I'm always talking about Tom Cotton. Notice that? I have this idea that he should be the 2024 GOP nominee for president. I just like his style as something serious and you know, solid about him that uh, appeals to me. Anyway, his piece was called, uh, it's the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival. Why haven't we heard more about it? And I said, I'm guessing the reason is that we're not proud of American history anymore. The Pilgrims have been problematized. Senator Tom says, the Pilgrims have fallen out of fashion in elite circles. Just this week, Just this week, the New York Times food section published an article called The Pilgrim Story, including the first, uh, that called The Pilgrim Story, including the first Thanksgiving, a myth and a caricature. In place of these so-called myths, the liberal newspaper seeks to substitute its own, claiming the history of our nation is an unbroken tale of conflict, oppression, and misery. The pilgrims were not the first European settlers to arrive in America, but they were exceptional nonetheless. As President John Quincy Adams put it, 
Earlier European settlers were traitors and adventurers motivated by avarice and ambition. They came principally to fish, farm, and trap furs. By contrast, the pilgrims braved the rough seas under the single inspiration of conscience, as Puritan separatists from the Church of England seeking the freedom to practice their faith. These pilgrims distinguished themselves further by drafting a remarkable document to govern their community in the New World, the Mayflower Compact. This little compact, at less than 200 words, foreshadowed many of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution more than a century later, um, including this little compact at less than 200 words foreshadowed many of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution more than a century later, including faith in God, the natural equality of mankind, government by consent, and the rule of law. Little wonder then that Adams referred to the Mayflower Compact and the Pilgrim's arrival as the birthday of your nation, or that Webster, despite all the events preceding Plymouth, said, the first scene of our history was laid there. Half the settlers died during the first winter. Seldom did more than a half dozen have the strength to care for the ill, provide food and shelter, and protect the camp. But what can only be called a providential moment came in March when a lone Native American walked boldly into the pilgrim's camp and greeted them in English. His name was Samoset. Samoset had learned some broken English by working with English fishermen in the waters off what is now Maine. He and the pilgrims exchanged gifts, and he promised to return with another Native American, Squanto, who spoke fluent English. Squanto's tribe had been wiped out in a few years earlier by an ep epidemic plague. He now lived among the Wapanoag tribe in what is today southeastern Massachusetts in Rhode Island. The plague had also weakened the Wampanoags though not neighboring rival tribes. The Wampanoag chief, Massasoit, thus had, a good, thus, thus had good reason to form an alliance with the pilgrims. Squanto introduced him to the settlers and facilitated their peace and mutual aid treaty, which lasted more than 50 years. Squanto remained with the pilgrims, acting in Bradford's words as their interpreter and a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectations. He instructed them in the cultivation of native crops like corn, squash, and beans. He showed them where to fish and hunt. He guided them on land and sea to new destinations. And you probably remember learning what happened next. As the pilgrims recovered and prospered throughout 1621, they received the blessings of a beautiful fall harvest. The pilgrims invited Massasoit and the Wampanoags to join them in a feast to express their gratitude to their allies and to give thanks to God for his abundant gifts. This meal, of course, was the first Thanksgiving. And I said, so it's next year that ought to matter the most, the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. When the time comes, we'll see if the elite rise to the occasion or if the depressing, shameful view of American history prevails. Next year, it will be Joe Biden wrangling the turkeys or Kamala, the cob to his corn. And we'll see what kind of light shines on the real 400th anniversary. Did you understand my little quip? Kamala the cob to his corn, the two turkeys that Trump had, you know, they always have an alternate in case something goes wrong with the turkey they plant. 
like if they have the turkey there and they plan to uh, pardon him, I guess he might die or get sick or turn strange looking in some way and uh, they have a backup turkey, an understudy turkey. So it was Cobb and Corn, and Corn was the one that got pardoned. Cobb was the other turkey. And so um, it, it's sort of like uh, the main one was Corn, so that makes Biden is the Corn and uh, Kamala's the backup, the Cobb, the Cobb to his Corn. Was that a joke worth making? I don't know, but uh, you know, you make these little jokes as you uh, put things together at what time was it? Eight, 8.20 in the morning? Now, the next post I did was about something that Iglesias wrote at his news site, Slow Boring, and it's called National Democrats Misguided Reembrace of Gun Control. It costs votes, and it doesn't produce any gun control. And I just put this up, a quote from the very end of the article. If you're comfortable about saying that it's fine for politicians to be politically pragmatic in their approach to alcohol regulation, but that guns are such a transcendent question of conscience that you can't stomach it, I think you should examine where that's coming from. I suspect that you drink alcohol yourself and that alcohol consumption is common in your social circle and in fact it's woven into the rituals of communal life. And I can relate, that's me too. Indeed, a lot of people like me don't realize that drinking is much less common among working class people. The point is that guns are just like this for a lot of other people. And while the centrality of booze and guns to people's social and communal lives is not great for public health, basically everyone understands that with regard to alcohol, you have to work within the confines of political reality, and guns are just not different from that. And guns fundamentally are just not different from that. And he links to, on that point, about how um, people, that, that drinking is much less common among working class people. A lot of people don't realize drinking is much less common among working class people. For that, he links to something, a Gallup article from 2015, drinking highest among educated upper class, educated upper income Americans. And a quote from that article is, Americans of higher socioeconomic status are more likely to participate in activities that may involve drinking, such as dining out at restaurants, going on vacation, or socializing with co-workers. And I added, I wonder how Iglesias is doing with this new project. He's put up a very long article, but some of that length is verbosity, really bad verbosity. That second to last sentence above needlessly trips up the reader. This is quoting that sentence, and it's the second to the last article, uh, sentence in the long article. And while the centrality of booze and guns to people's social and communal lives is not great for public health, etc., etc., I got confused by is not great, because if the centrality is not great, I can tell you with reflection, I can see that he means to say that the centrality is not harmful, but it could also mean the centrality, the centrality is not great. It could mean the centrality, it's not really that central. There's not a whole lot of centrality there. I mean, just making centrality the subject of that sentence was a bad idea. It should be rewritten. And it's the main last uh, sentence, or the, you know, there's just one more short sentence after that. So that sentence carried a lot of weight. Anyway, I think if you're going to try to distinguish yourself with a website where what you have are longer, deeper articles, uh, you, you have to have good editing.
you have to have, you, you have to say it's long because it needs to be long because of the substance, not it's long because I wrote in a, a verbose padded style and I just wrote it all out and wrote everything that I thought and I didn't edit. Edit, you gotta edit, you gotta edit. Where are all the word editors? Anyway, I noticed, I, I often go over to Twitter and see what's trending in the morning, but you know, the, there's a certain amount of bullshit to what's trending on Twitter. Today, I saw that arrogance, just the word arrogance was trending on Twitter. And I go, well, why is that happening? And it was literally just, and maybe something of significance started it, but if you went over there, it was just the word arrogance, that anybody that had used the word arrogance seemed to be in this trend that you would get to if you click on the sidebar where it says that arrogance is trending. So I just um, put up uh, one of them, one that actually makes a point that I agree with. So it, this is just, it's not completely a random choice. Everything over there was random, but the one that I picked out, I kind of like the picture of the Milky Way of the stars. And it's from darkernights.org. I agree with the proposition here. I'm not, not, I don't agree. I agree with the idea of what they're trying to do. I don't agree with the characterization of it as arrogance. So I don't think it really has much to do with arrogance. I think it has more to do with fear and uh, just an insensitivity to aesthetics and to calm and peace. Here, I'll quote that. Arrogance is people putting up light at night that shines well beyond their own property into other people's yards, homes, in the sky. Be kind. Aim your lights down, or better yet, stop being afraid of the dark and just leave them off. We don't need most light at night. And I, I just say people have these security lights outside. We, we have a security light outside that's motion detected. So if somebody came into our yard, it would come on and uh, put the person in a bright light. So you don't want to do that. But to just have a light shining in your backyard all the time uh, it's not really a good idea. Put it on a motion detector. And at the very least, aim it down at the ground. Are you aiming it so that it's lighting up your neighbor's yard? Don't do that. That's not good. Anyway, now I see that Penguin Random House staff confront publisher about new Jordan Peterson book. During a tense town hall, staff cried and expressed dismay with the publisher's giant, the publishing giant's decision to publish Beyond order, 12 more rules for life. And I quoted an unnamed employee that said, he is an icon of hate speech and transphobia. And the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him. And then uh, quote another employee said, people were crying in the meeting and how Jordan, about how Jordan Peterson has affected their lives. They said one co-worker discussed how Peterson had radicalized their father. And another talked about how publishing the book will negatively affect their non-binary friend. Another one said, uh, the company since June has been doing all these anti-racist and allyship things. And then publishing Peterson's book completely goes against this. It just makes all of their previous efforts seem completely performative. <laughs> Completely, I like all the buzzwords in that in that quote. It was performative. Well, duh. Obviously, these <laughs> sessions companies are doing are performative. They're performing how anti-racist and and uh, what what allyship they have. Well, what do you think? 
Of course, that's what's so bad about it. What about things that really have substance, that really matter, that people really believe? This kind of protesting and crying about everything only makes that stuff worse. It only causes your employer to try to do more performing and more shallow uh, gestures of allyship and anti-racism. If you really want people to be honest and for things to really matter, we'll stop threatening to punish them and all of them doing cancel culture gestures on your side. And isn't that performative? Stop your own performance. How about if everybody just stop all the performance and start telling the truth? Start only saying the words that they themselves truly believe. Maybe that could be one of Jordan Peterson's rules for living. I've read his first rules for living book and I don't remember everything about it, but I didn't think it was about white supremacy. I didn't think it had anything to do with being against gay people or non-binary people. I didn't think it had anything, uh, what was that other insult about it? Uh, transphobia. I, I don't remember anything about that. But, uh, you know, what are they even talking about? Do they even know what they're talking about? They're, people are becoming hysterical and making big displays about principles that I don't even believe that they believe deeply in. Do people even remember what it's like or what it is? Or did they ever know how to be genuine and search for the truth? There's so little, little valuation of that anymore. It's bothering me. <laughs> and I really think that. Back to the quote, Peterson has maintained a very low, has maintained, oh wait, no, wait, it's went back to the wrong place. Here's another employee a junior employee who is a member of the LGBTQ community. I feel it was deliberately hidden, hidden and dropped on us once it was too late to change course. The employee said workers would have otherwise considered a walkout, similar, similar to what Hachette employees did when the publisher announced that it would be publishing Woody Allen's memoir. Hachette later dropped the book. Well, obviously the, the publishers have learned how to handle things so that they don't have to drop books that they want to publish and that they'll make a lot of money publishing. They want to be able to do it. They don't want to touch off the sensitive staff into making a big protest and taking a stand. Uh, so they're rolling it out the right way. That's what uh, Penguin is doing. Peng Penguin Random House, Canada. Uh, one more paragraph on this article. Peterson has maintained a very low profile over the past year as he has been dealing with serious health issues, which according to his daughter included a medically induced coma as he attempted to detox in Russia for a benzo dependence. In a subdued YouTube video released Monday, Peterson said he'd been working on his 12 rules sequel for the past three years. And so don't you want to see what he's come up with in three years? He has gone through a lot, becoming suddenly extremely popular, having all of this influence, and then having this terrible drug problem. And I think there are other problems. I know his daughter, he talked about it in the first book, his daughter has health problems too. So he's still giving us advice, even though he had a terrible drug problem. There must be some humility in this advice. In the, I, I embedded the YouTube video that he made, which is 12 minutes long, and he Reads the, um, reads the introduction to the book. And the new book is, uh, it's called Beyond Order. So, you know, order and chaos. What 
it's a big theme. And, you know, we, we long for order, but too much order is a problem, and you can't have complete order anyway. Don't you want to hear his insights? How about finding out what he has to say and then disagreeing with specific things that he says? Why don't these young people who do these protests and take stands and try to get cancellation rolling, why don't they try listening to actual ideas and responding with their own ideas? Let's have a, let's have a discussion, a debate. Don't they believe in diversity? Well, only of a certain type of diverse. They don't believe in the diversity of diversity. They want a specific kind of diversity and other forms of diversity are rejected. So it's an, there's, there's not diversity within diversity, which would be a better idea thing. Um, now, uh, oh, I clicked on something. Then I have a post about this, um, let's say it was um, an article in the New York Times that, I'll just read you the headline of the New York Times article, but it got me to something that happened uh, in 2019. Um, As their DC days dwindle, Ivanka and Jared look for a new beginning. The end of President Trump's time in office leaves his daughter Ivanka Trump and his son-in-law Jared Kushner looking for a new home, but they appear to have plans in New Jersey. I don't care about all that real estate stuff. I mean, I cared enough to look at some of the pictures, but that's not what I'm writing about. What I'm writing about is something that Ivanka Trump, what I put as the post title, is a quote from Ivanka Trump reacting to an art installation called Ivanka Vacuuming, which has a model who's intended to look as much like Ivanka as they could get, and she's uh, in a uh, carpeted, space within the gallery. It's got pink carpet and she's got a big old upright vacuum cleaner and then people who come to the gallery uh, are faced with a big pile of crumbs and then they can take handfuls of crumbs and throw them on the floor and then the Ivanka character can vacuum them up. So if you're fascinated by beautiful women all dressed up in heels vacuuming and you like the idea of being able to throw the crumbs in front of her and, and then she'll vacuum them up. It's sort of like feeding the pigeons, except she's not eating, she's vacuuming, and, and, uh, and she's a, an actress doing it to have an artistic impact on your head, not a simple animal trying to get some food. She's not eating the crumbs. Nothing interesting happens. There's no point when she stops vacuuming and gets down on the floor and leans over and eats the crumbs or anything like that. It's sheerly vacuuming. And uh, she said, women can choose to knock each other down or build each other up. I choose the latter. Like, <laughs> so she, ironically, she's knocking down the artist, Jennifer Rubel. So I thought that was funny because, of course, Rubel was tearing her down. Uh, but she's like, in this lofty way, women can choose to knock each other down or build each other up. I choose the latter. But, of course, she is knocking down the artist. Jennifer Rubel, but she's just fighting back. Like her father, she's, she'll punch back. She, she likes, she's a defensive player. Rubel said, I truly did not intend the piece to be only a critique of her. I thought it was just as indicting of the viewer and all of us in our perception of her. I invited her to see the show. I was so naive. I thought she would think it was kind of, 
Well, that happened in uh, 2019, but I didn't notice it at the time. I noticed it because it was referred to in that New York Times article about what what will Ivanka and Jared do next after they they were they had so much going for them, and then they aligned their, themselves with uh, Trump, and and now Trump is out, and what will they do? What will the glamour couple do? Um, be interesting to see. And I went back and found a WAPO article from February 2019. The performance piece Ivanka vacuuming seems to irk the first daughter even more than fake news. And this is a quote from that article. Rebel's work invites multiple interpretations, including ones that suggest the idea of a taint or stain or ineradicable blight, and others that speak directly to ideas of wealth and the cultural laundering of wealth. As visitors throw crumbs onto a carpet, the stand-in Ivanka hoovers them up with a rictus of a smile on her face. In a literal but comic sense, she's doing the clean-up work that she struggles to do within the administration, which always seems to soil things, even its own efforts to dismantle political and social contracts. Is Donald Trump racist? No matter, Ivanka will clean up the mess, even as her father tweets out more dog-whistle racism. There's something Sisyphean about the two-hour performance. The crumbs just keep coming. And the cleaning up is never done. Crumbs recall the economics of wealth and poverty, the idea of trickle-down economics, and the old saying, commonly but falsely attributed to Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake or brioche. Perhaps the crumbs are us, the 99%, the losers in the great economic shakedown of late capitalism. There may be even now people buzzing about Ivanka vacuuming at dinner parties on Manhattan's Upper East Side, and that chatter is a form of invisible work, cutting and etching and effacing all the possible Ivankas in ways that are both invisible and indelible, close quote. And I repeated the quote, that chatter is a form of invisible work. Women's work, it includes chatter, chatter while drinking in posh locations. When will we women ever get equal pay for equal work? And when will people begin to fathom the work that we do? Vacuuming endlessly, cleaning up metaphorically, picking up crumbs and etching and effacing? It's laborious. I'm just a little bit kidding around there. I'm interested in the performance piece. I think it's interesting enough. Obviously, Ivanka isn't going to attend it. Uh, and uh, I think she's fine with her little sentence that contains an, a, uh, an ironic uh, hypocrisy. Don't, well, women tearing other women down. But uh, the idea that, uh, uh, well, I, I'll say no more. Let me see. We have, oh, I'm almost done for the day. I have a little quote from Bernie Sanders quoted at Politico. He says, it seems to me pretty clear that progressive views need to be expressed within a Biden administration. It would, oh, I could have done my Bernie accent. Wait, let me start again. Have I ever, I, I can do it. I, I, if I'm not too shy, I think I can uh, do a, kind of a Bernie Sanders way of speaking. It seems to me pretty clear. <laughs> no, wait, I'm too shy. I really can't do it. I have to do my own version. It seems to me pretty clear that progressive views need to be expressed within a Biden administration. It would be, for example, enormously insulting if Biden put together a team of rivals 
and there's some discussion that that's what he intends to do, which might include Republicans and conservative Democrats, but which ignored the progressive community. I think that would be very, very unfortunate. And that, and the name of the article is, the headline is, Bernie Sanders enormously insulting if Biden ignores progressives in his administration. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren remain interested in serving in Biden's cabinet. And what I thought was interesting, oh, a lot of things interesting about that, but did you notice, he thinks it would be terrible to have a team of rivals. And he's using the term team of rivals, which, go, which has traditionally been used going back to Abraham Lincoln to refer to having um, some members of uh, the other party in your cabinet. But if, uh, if Biden included Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or some of the really progressive Democrats, wouldn't that be a team of rivals too? Oh, a team of rivals is enormously insulting because a team of rivals would be that he might have some Republicans and some conservative Democrats, but the demand that he have progressive Democrats is also a demand for a team of rivals. Oh, the ironies are piling up in the the blogging of um, of uh, today. Let's see. I've already put up a cafe for today, the Coot Cafe. A lot of coots out on Lake Mendota. I went out for my morning run, my sunrise run, and they were they were all lined up. It almost looked like a big log was floating out in the water. They were all in a line. And then later when I came back and took this picture, they were a little more spread out. But they're, they're like a floating raft, oh, the coots. They look a little like ducks, but they're not ducks. You might think, are they grebes? But they're not grebes. They're coots. You've heard the word coot used metaphorically to refer to old people especially, I think, annoying old people or a certain sort of old people. It's like geezer. But the real coot is this bird. And, and there you have it. I also put up a post of, uh, you, you got to go to the blog to see this embedded video, but it's a guy walking along the narrowest ridge at the top of the Matterhorn. And it's a wide-angle lens, so you see the, the uh, mountain falling off really steeply. On either side, he's just walking along a narrow thing, and it looks like, you know, uh, miles to the ground. And then I only have one more thing, and that's, uh, I, I, I've been watching The Crown lately. I said this in my um, podcast yesterday. So I, I like to read recaps of the different episodes. It's fun to watch something and then read what people say about it, but I was... I haven't been moved to link to anything until I saw this at the Vulture. Um, the uh, Prince Charles's most punchable moments in season four of The Crown ranked. We're, he, he, we're merely here to marvel at the sheer punchability of actor Josh O'Connor. We're here to marvel at the sheer punchability actor Josh O'Connell. Actor Josh O'Connor manages to convey as the fictional Prince of Wales on Peter Morgan's work of fiction, The Crown. It is a work of fiction. It's based on these real characters, but it's fictionalized. I started watching The Crown. I began with season four. I was in a situation where I had access to Netflix, which I've avoided subscribing to until now, so I decided to watch episode two of season four, The Balmoral Test. And that had a lot of Diane, the actress playing Diana and the actress playing um, Margaret Thatcher. And so I watched, uh, so I watched episode two, three, four, five, 
six, and then I went back and watched one. So that's that's as much as I've I've watched the first uh, seven episodes of season four. I thought that was pretty good, and I intend to go back and watch the series from the beginning. But I just wanted to watch it where where it was uh, where I was reading about it, hearing about it. The awfulness of Prince Charles is quite something, I said. So it makes it so amusing the way Josh O'Connor plays Prince Charles and the terrible things that he does. Of course, you know how badly the marriage with Diana is going to work out. So, you know, that's no secret. That's no surprise. But just the details, the details they choose to feature and the little scenes, the little glimpses of uh, what it may have been like or something of what it might have been like uh, is just uh, very highly, uh, very intense, just little things. And the punchable moments concept expresses it uh, pretty well. So I thought that was pretty good. I thought I'd send you over there. And hey, uh, that gets us to the end. I've been having a little trouble with uh, or, or anchor the where I host this, which hosts this podcast, has having been having some trouble with its uh, servers. So I'll get I'm getting this recording done. Maybe I won't be able to put it up for a while. And if you go back to old uh, podcasts, you may have noticed that they haven't been quite working or something. But uh, but we'll see how this works out. 